Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Basord. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in London in the United Kingdom, and I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor Richard Bett. Uh, Richard Bett is Professor of Philosophy and Classics at Johns Hopkins University. He edited the Cambridge Companion to Ancient Skepticism and has published widely on the subject. He lives in Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, Professor Betts has just published a fascinating book entitled How to Keep an Open Mind, an Ancient Guide to, the, to Thinking Like a Skeptic. And it's based on some of the writing, writings of a chap called Sextus Empiricus, who lived well over 2,000 years ago. Um, and we're going to be chatting about this book published by Princeton um, University Press. Um, but first of all, uh, Professor Bett, you, you're a professor of philosophy and classics. So, and you've, you've translated a lot of this chap's um, work, and he was alive over 2,000 years ago. Why should we in the modern world pay any attention to these people like Sextus Empiricus, who were writing so long ago? What have they got to say to us in the modern world, given the ancient world was so different to ours? Um, right, it's a good question. First of all, let me correct you on one small thing. Uh, Sextus didn't live more than 2,000 years ago. He lived probably around 2,000, sorry, 200 of the common era. Um, so we don't know the exact dates. Uh, in fact, his, his life is some, something of a mystery. But yeah, he's, he's actually in the common era period, so slightly less than 2,000 years ago. Anyway, the, but your main point stands. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, their lives were very different from ours in, in many ways, um, but there are certain kinds of common human experience that I think uh, pretty much anyone uh, will encounter. Uh, and I think, I mean, I find part of the interest in studying uh, ancient Greek and Roman texts is both the similarities and the differences. And I think, you know, that's something one could say about studying a culture other than one's own, whether in the same time or in different times. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think we can learn from things that they say uh, that may resonate with us, but also things that make it sound like they're from another planet. And, you know, I constantly deal with examples of both kinds of things. But there are several uh, modern philosophers or more modern philosophers, philosophers. I'm thinking of someone like Nietzsche, who um, took a view that life has really gone downhill ever since the ancient Greeks, uh, that there was something very important about the ancient Greeks and the ancient Greek philosophers that we really in the modern world should pay extra attention to. Um, and, and we neglect them at our peril. Um, any, any thoughts about that or response to that? Well, I mean, in Nietzsche's case, I'm not sure I'd agree that, I'd agree that he thinks everything's gone downhill, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental problem for him is Christianity. And I think the, the best thing for him about the Greeks, the best single thing is that they're pre-Christian. Um, and they uh, don't have an outlook that's centered around guilt as, as he would uh, conceive it and, and, and sin and those kinds of things. Uh, so, yeah, and, and I, I think this is relevant to, to um, ancient Greek ethics in general, um, that for them, the, the goal is to figure out what is a good life for a human being. That is a life that is well lived from the point of view of the agent, her or himself, um, and that's a very different kind of approach to uh, ethics and to uh, you know, how to guide your life uh, than you'll standardly get from Christianity, at least as Nietzsche uh, understands it. Um, so I think, yeah, he, he, he thinks of it as a kind of return to some ideas that have gotten lost um, through uh, Christianity. Not that the Greeks didn't have a lot to do with the development of Christianity itself. So it's, it's a complicated picture in his case. 
Um, but yes, I mean, uh, it, it's interesting. I, I've, I've written one or two papers comparing Nietzsche and Sextus and, and the similarities and the differences are, are, you know, I could talk about it forever. Um, but yeah, that, that's probably somewhat to the side of, of our topic today. But I thought the other thing that um, a lot of uh, modern philosophers are enthusiastic about the ancient Greeks and are wistful about it is they took the life of the mind really seriously. They, they seem to enjoy thinking hard about stuff and they seem to be have a kind of childlike fascination and wonder with reason and using reason to understand themselves and the world. Something that many people would say we've kind of lost in the modern world. Uh, well, the Greek philosophers certainly fit that description, but I don't think the average Greek person fit that description any more than the average modern person does. I mean, I think, I think this is an artifact of the fact that we, you know, we only have uh, written records. And, well, I mean, we have physical archaeological records, but uh, in terms of sort of getting inside their heads, we have written records only from a, a tiny elite and only a very small amount of, uh, of those. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that that is something that, that uh, modern philosophers often look back to. But uh, I think in, in the ancient uh, Greek and Roman world, they, the philosophers were just as much a minority as philosophers are uh, today. They may have had more kind of influence on the educated person's living of their life, because I think philosophy in the ancient world was more directed towards living life than most philosophy is today. Um, but that, yeah, that, that's a slightly different issue, I think. Okay, so the title of the book is How to Keep an Open Mind. And straight away, I get a sense that keeping an open mind is an activity that requires work and effort. Um, and this guide written by Sextus Empiricus, which you have um, put a commentary in and, and translated for us, um, this notion that actually keeping, keeping an open mind it's not a straightforward thing and requires a bit of effort and requires an, an action, an activity. But if the, the default position seems to be not to have an open mind. Any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, no, I think that's quite right. I mean, as, as a description of how Sextus uh, proceeds. So for him, he describes uh, um, skepticism as an ability to bring about suspension of judgment about things. And uh, yeah, I think his assumption is uh, the natural tendency of humans is to slide into dogmatic belief. Um, and for him, that's problematic for a number of reasons that we can maybe get into. Um, and so for him, yes, uh, it, it's, it's an activity that you need to cultivate um, and that requires uh, sort of constantly keeping an eye out for opposing points of view on any given topic. Um, and if you're really good at this, you'll always find opposing points of view. Uh, and so you'll end up suspending judgment. And for him, that's, that's supposed to be um, beneficial because it produces tranquility. Um, but yes, you're, you're quite right. That there is an activity involved there. Um, and my title was part, partly reflective of that. Yeah. So um, it's a philosophy. Skepticism is a philosophy, which is a guide to how to lead your life and how to think about the world. You will meet people who will make assertions, you will hear things on the news, and it's about how to think about statements that other people make um, about who to vote for and uh, what the news tells you is going on in the world. So tell us a little bit about what Sextus is saying um, in terms of how to take a skeptical approach to life. Right. Well, most of what Sextus himself talks about uh, is theoretical views of uh, um, yeah, a, a rather abstract kind. Um, so 
he doesn't really talk that much about voting and things like that. But what he, do, he does very clearly indicate um, is a way for a skeptic to live a life. Because you might think, you might well think, well, if you suspend judgment about everything, how are you ever going to make any decisions? Um, and his answer is, well, you proceed according to how things appear. Um, and so what you're suspending judgment about is uh, sort of the ultimate nature of things, the way things really are. Um, you can keep all that to the side and you can sort of go with the flow of how things appear. Um, and the way that he describes it, this will include following the laws and customs of your native land. Um, and so in, in his picture, there's a somewhat sort of status quo aspect to skepticism, I think. Um, but I don't think you necessarily have to think of it that way. Um, the, in general, what you do is you, you follow the way things strike you. Um, and not, not to say you shouldn't look around and, and, and check the evidence and things like that, but you follow the way things strike you without committing yourself to the way things really are. Um, and being willing to, you know, revise your uh, revise your um, sense of how things are uh, based on new evidence, um, and that'll be how you react to the news, uh, decide how to vote, um, all those kinds of things. Um, so it's it's always going to be like taking it with a grain of salt. Uh, you you don't think you've got the final answer on anything, and people who do think they have the final answers on things uh, are in trouble, as far as he's concerned. So it's kind of like you should lead your life by accepting that what you're making decisions over are the appearance of things, but be very cautious that you really know the reality of things. So it, it's a kind of like lead your life, but have a certain detachment as you do that, which feels a little bit like Buddhism. And there is a kind of connection here that, that Sextus may have been influenced by a previous thinker who may have journeyed to India and met Buddhists, possibly, or, the, or Indian wise men anyway. Could you say something about that? Yeah, that's right. So, um, and yeah, this is a sort of tantalizing issue, but yeah, Sextus belongs to the um, so-called Pyrrhonist uh, tradition of skepticism, um, deriving that is from the figure of Pyrrho, uh, who was about 500 years earlier than Sextus himself. Um, and yeah, lived in the era of Alexander the Great, uh, and traveled in Alexander's campaign to India. Um, and yeah, supposedly, according to this one story, met some so-called naked wise men in India um, from whom, according to this source, uh, he got his basic attitude. Um, now, yeah, it, it's very hard to know how to assess that, that uh, report. Uh, there may be something to it. Um, a further complication is Sextus and Pyrrho, uh, as I say, they're several centuries apart. Um, there's good reason to think their specific outlooks are, are far from identical. Nonetheless, I think it's quite true that in the tradition of Pyrrhonist skepticism in general, there's a kind of similarity to a Buddhist outlook, whether or not the, the issue of historical influence, um, whether or not there was such an influence uh, or whether or not we can answer that question. So yeah, I mean, readers of Sextus, and when I teach this in, in, um, in classes, I mean, very often students will say, this is sort of reminds me of Buddhism. And I, and I think there's, there's something really right about that. Um, and yes, I think detachment is uh, a key aspect of it. Um, so right. Um, Part of the goal of all of this is that nothing should really matter to you all that much. And that's why 
suspension of judgment is supposed to uh, lead you to tranquility. Um, there may be some downsides to detachment. Uh, and so, right, I mean, it, it, this may not be for everyone, um, but as far as he's concerned, that's, uh, that's a very definite plus. So skepticism in his hands isn't just a philosophy whereby it's, it's a, a better connection with the reality of the world, because people tend to get dogmatic beliefs, which may not be true because of their dogmatism, but it's also a pathway to inner peace, to, it's almost like a psychotherapy, as it were, which um, me being a psychiatrist, I'm particularly interested in that. And, and, and not just it's a pathway, I think he's going hard, further than that, saying it's the pathway to inner tranquility. Could you say something about that? That's right. And I mean, everything he says, of course, has to be qualified with, well, of course, this is how it strikes me right now. So he's not going to put that forward as a dogmatic claim either. But yes, his, his idea seems to be this is a more effective way of uh, achieving inner peace than various others that were on offer. And yeah, I mean, he's by no means alone in uh, later antiquity, broadly speaking. Um, in thinking of um, a kind of tranquility as being what's worth striving for. Um, but other philosophies had different views of how to do that. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll just mention the, the one that's closest in terms of the goal I and mean, the very same word, ataraxia, which means freedom from worry, uh, is uh, given as the goal both of the skeptics like Sextus and of the Epicureans. Uh, the Epicureans thought they could do this uh, in a precisely opposite way to Sextus, namely by coming to understand that the world really consists of atoms and void, and so there aren't uh, gods threatening to punish you and, and all that kind of worrisome stuff. Um, so the goal of inner peace uh, is by no means unique to Sextus, but his um, picture of how to get it uh, is very specific. Um, yeah, so uh, I think that's quite right. And, and, and so it is a kind of therapy. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think there was, yeah, there was a book that was published, oh wow, it must be close to 30 years ago now, uh, called The Therapy of Desire, about, precisely about this um, sort of strand in, in ancient Greek philosophy. It's by Martha Nussbaum, who's a, a name that's quite widely known. Um, so um, th this notion that you're going to achieve in a piece comes, uh, according to your book, in two ways. One is don't get too attached to stuff because getting too attached like to the pay rise and your disappointment over the fact your boss didn't give you a pay rise is a dogmatic belief that pay rises really, really matter. Um, so be more skeptical about conclusions you're coming to about what really matters, but yeah. also be more skeptical about, about the idea that you can ever really know ultimate truth. So be, be a bit more relaxed about, about that because the pursuit of ultimate truth will begin to bother you, will become bothersome because you can never get there. Is that kind of what he's saying? Yeah, yeah, that, that's more or less right. And, and so, right, the second one that you mentioned is tends to be restricted more to kind of theoretically minded folks. Uh, the, the one about good and bad and, and not being too attached to things and, and thinking that they really matter that can that could apply to anyone, uh, you know, theorist or not. Um, but yes, the, the, the issue about um, not thinking you're going to get the ultimate truth, I think that really applies more to, you know, scientists and, and uh, inquirers, intellectual inquirers of various kinds, um, who might be worried about, you know, very eager to get the truth, but worried about the prospect of doing so, and disappointed constantly by the failure to do so. Um, and <clears throat> You know, in the ancient world, uh, there was nothing like the kind of um, 
experimental techniques that we now have. Um, and so competing views very quickly um, came to uh, sort of a face-off uh, that could just be, could only be resolved by abstract argument. And, uh, you know, in that kind of situation, it's very unlikely you are going to get uh, definitive answers that are going to satisfy everyone. Um, and so, yeah, uh, in that kind of situation, you're likely to end up with a whole bunch of competing views. And uh, Sextus's idea is, well, um, just be happy with that. Well, well, in fact, if you find this happening often enough, you will be happy with it. Um, and so that will sort of cure you of your angst about uh, the prospects of achieving truth. Um, but yeah, as I say, I think that that side of it is maybe not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, whereas the issue about uh, not caring too much about things um, could apply, it could be, you know, worth thinking about for really pretty much anyone. Could you say something about some of the techniques he suggests by whereby, whereby you go about achieving more skepticism? I mean, one of the techniques I think in the book is the notion that you should assemble um, a variety of opinions and you should assemble contrary opinions and become aware of the opposing arguments to any particular argument. Did you say something about that? Yeah, sure. So that, I mean, that basically is his method, is uh, the method of opposition. Um, so yeah, you, you let me, well, I'll, I'll just read the, the passage that says what skepticism is. The skeptical ability is one that produces oppositions among things that appear and things that are thought in any way whatsoever, from which, because of the equal strength in the opposing objects and accounts, we come first to suspension of judgment, and after that to tranquility. Um, so yeah, you are sensitive to opposing points of view, not just that, uh, you sort of line them up in such a way that they will come across to you as equally strong, as he puts it. Um, and so then, you know, if, if there really is, if you're really no more inclined to go one way than another on a certain topic, well, then you really don't have any choice but to suspend judgment. That's just what will happen. Um, and yeah, he has a whole lot of uh, sort of ready-made um, examples to wheel out uh, uh, for this kind of purpose. Um, these are the so-called modes. Uh, so they're, they're sort of standardized forms of argumentation that involve drawing attention precisely to all of these uh, opposing points of view or opposing impressions of things. Um, for example, you know, um, things Come, things appear differently to animals and to humans. Things appear differently to different humans for various reasons. Things appear differently to the different senses. Um, those are the first three of, of the 10 modes. Um, and so, you know, you, you, you think about all of these different ways things appear and who's to say which one is more likely to be the one that is you know, correct or that gets to the truth of the matter. Uh, answer, we have no idea. And so uh, you end up with, uh, equally forceful opposing impressions or arguments. Um, and as I say, he also, I mean, most of his work uh, is devoted to doing this kind of thing with philosophical opinions, uh, philosophical theories um, on different sides of a given issue um, in the main areas of philosophy, logic, physics, and ethics, as they were understood uh, in later antiquity. Um, but there's a real life sort of application of it uh, as well. And I think the modes are maybe the best uh, instance of that. So I got the feeling he's trying to describe what I might call how to be intelligently skeptical, as opposed 
as opposed to just being pervasively skeptical. So you could argue we live in an age of skepticism. Yeah, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's a large group of people who are very skeptical about vaccines, for example. And there's this word called vaccine hesitancy. Um, I get the feeling that what he is trying to say is that yes, you shouldn't just go and take a vaccine because a doctor tells you to, you should think hard about what's the evidence one way or the other. But I think he's also saying there's a difference between it being intelligently skeptical, i.e. being thoughtful, but eventually coming to a decision for good reasons, as opposed to being unintelligently skeptical. What are your thoughts about that idea? Um, I think that's right. Again, I mean, I think we have to be careful to distinguish kind of the, the theoretical outlook and the uh, everyday attitude of going along with the appearances. Um, but yes, I think that's right. You, you don't just sort of clump for uh, an attitude of, of you know, refusal to uh, accept any views. Um, no, you, you look at the evidence, you look at, you look at what people say uh, on either side. Um, and yeah, when it comes to a practical decision, um, you go with what strikes you. Um, and that, yeah, that, that can be uh, you know, informed by uh, checking, checking with other people, checking with evidence, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, the vaccine hesitancy thing, I mean, it depends why they're hesitant. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I think there's you know, some, some forms, some ideas that are out there in today, in, you know, in, in the present time, are, which might be described as skeptical. I would think I'm decidedly non-skeptical uh, in sexist sense of the term. I mean, so, you know, pe people who accept, who, um, doubt science because of conspiracy theories or something. They're not skeptical at all. They, they've bought into some alternative worldview and, and they're very strongly committed to it. And you know, that's the kind of thing that I think um, Sextus would want us to keep an open mind about just as much as, uh, uh, as, as the science that they're opposing. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you have to be careful what, what we're gonna call skepticism uh, in this context. So one of the reasons I think this book, and I was very keen to interview you, is really of the moment, is I think it's kind of prophetic. I think Sextus was um, a, kind of foreseeing the upcoming age of dogmatism. I think, in my opinion, I'm interested to hear your, your counterpoint to this, and um, we live in a world, of, in an age of dogmatism, where people make their minds up very fast, the internet produces a kind of echo chamber where people with strange views and um, find other people with exactly the same views and they hang around each other and they spend all their time confirming each other's prejudices. There's quite a famous court case going on in the US at the moment. It, it, it could be done at any time because anyone could be listening to this podcast. Where generally speaking, in court cases today, the way they're reported in the media, people seem to have made their mind up. They know who's guilty and, and innocent before the verdict is out. Um, we seem to live in an age of dogmatism. And that's why this book is really of the moment, because he's warning people that we're heading down that road. And we've seemed to have ended up exactly where I would argue he's prophesying and it's not a very good place. Any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and no, I think, I think that, that that's quite right. Um, and I mean, I wrote this, uh, uh, I wrote my introduction before, well, before the 2020 US election for one thing, um, but you know, pe people have been on at, at loggerheads and sort of in these intellectual silos. Uh, and, and I agree with you. I think, I mean, social media um, has had a lot to do with that um, for a number of years. Um, maybe, maybe I'm sure there's always been some of it, but it, I think it's, it's intensified in recent years because of um, social media and other, other things. 
Um, and yeah, that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that I think it'd be good to get away from. Um, and yeah, when I was writing this, I, I, I mentioned this in my, my introduction, I, I happened to go to uh, a forum on you know, ways to um, strengthen democracy in the face of sort of creeping efforts towards authoritarianism, which I think is another aspect of, of what you, you were talking about. Um, and yeah, it's a very, very famous political scientist, uh, Michael Walzer, made the case that democracy thrives on endless argument. Um, and I think that, that I, I felt that that really tied in with um, the uh, sort of lesson you can get from Sextus. I mean, I don't think we can, we can't go all the way with him. Um, and part of the reason is we actually do know a lot more than was possible for anyone to know in the ancient world, but a sort of general attitude of being willing to look at alternatives and, and not being too sure that you've um, fixed on the truth uh, uh, is one thing that I think we can take from him uh, that I think absolutely is very much of the moment for us today. Um, and I think that um, the attempts, because the authorities and doctors are scared of the of the anti-vax movement. Let's take that example. It's very, very live at the moment. So in their anxiety over trying to get people to take the vaccine, they get celebrities to go on TV or past presidents take the vaccine. So they, the counter argument is equally, in a sense, unthinking in, in its dogmatism, which is take the vaccine. Whereas a correct approach would seem to help help people think intelligently about the subject and let them make their own mind up, but have confidence that if they think intelligently about the subject, they'll come to an intelligent decision. And so in a way, the, the response to the current dogmatism is an, a, a counter dogmatism, as opposed to the correct antidote is help people think clearly about stuff. Again, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think there's, there's two things. I mean, the, the, there's what you can do in a sort of public domain to try to change the, the, the you know, tide of opinion. And there, I mean, it's hard to know how else to do it than by various kinds of devices, uh, such as the, the, you know, the doctors are, uh, are trying to implement. Um, the, the, the kind of more painstaking and thoughtful approach that you're talking about, I think maybe works better in a, in a more private setting. And um, I mean, I'm not sure that, I mean, there aren't enough counselors to go around to, to sort of go out to the whole population and, and engage with them in, the, in that, kind of, um, that kind of discourse. Uh, so, I mean, I think I can understand uh, why the doctors and the scientists take the approach they do. Um, but, but I agree uh, that, 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 that the, the more sort of uh, nuts and bolts down to the details approach uh, will probably be more effective, at least to somebody who's willing to listen. And I mean, that's the other thing is, is uh, who's, who is willing to change their mind? Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't seem to be. So one of the, because running out of time a little bit, just to, to, to touch on a few things which I thought were incredibly prophetic. So in modern psychology at the moment, one of the things that's in vogue in terms of trying to understand delusional thinking, people who go psychotic and believe they're God and stuff like that and have delusional beliefs, is um, a, a phrase called jump to conclusions. They have a tendency to jump to conclusions. It's, it's even got an acronym, JTC. Um, as being the underlying problem that leads to delusional thinking. And I thought Sextus was incredibly prophetic because he's kind of like warning people about the tendency to jump to conclusions. Any thoughts about that? Absolutely. No, I, th I think that's quite right. Uh, I mean, uh, he frequently, and again, it, I mean, it, it's usually directed to his fellow philosophers, 
Um, but yes, he frequently accuses them of being rash. So, you know, rashness is um, precisely, uh, in this context, precisely is jumping to conclusions before they're warranted. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's quite right. So um, one thing which is a bit dangerous to get into because it's a very technical area, but um, it seems to me that Sextus, I wasn't aware of this, anticipated David Hume's objection to induction. Now, induction is a very important idea because it lies at the heart of, of science to some extent. And I know it's a very technical area and people run screaming from the room at, at David Hume's critique of induction. But is there any chance you might say something about that? Because it does sound as though Sextus actually anticipated David Hume's objection to induction. Could you say something well, about that? Sure, yeah, I mean, in, in a broad sense he did, uh, but the, the entire discussion takes about two minutes to read. Uh, I, but I mean, the basic idea is, I mean, induction is where you uh, infer a universal conclusion from a bunch of particular examples. Um, and his point, uh, like Hume's, is, well, uh, if you've only looked at some of the examples, there could be some exceptions. Um, and there's no way you can look at all the examples um, because that would just be infinite, at least in, in most cases that would be interesting to know about. Um, and so, yeah, in, in, there's something fishy about induction uh, if you think it's gonna give you certainty uh, about uh, the conclusions you're drawing. Now, I mean, of course, the scientists will say, well, it doesn't give us certainty. It gives us, let's say, more probable result than any of the alternatives. Um, but yes, I think uh, in a broad sense, Sextus's uh, reservations about induction are pretty similar to Hume's, even though, yeah, as I say, it, he does it in about three sentences as opposed to a much longer discussion that Hume gets into. Okay, so as I said before, running out of time, but could you just tell us a little bit about Sextus the person? Tell us what we know a bit about him. I understand he was a doctor and me being a doctor, I find that interesting. But I also got a sense and I'm interested in the, the, the kind of personality he was because the way he writes, as you, as you translated, you get a sense of a certain kind of personality in terms of how almost dogmatic he is about skepticism, if I can put it that way. You just get a feeling he would be a very argumentative dinner, dinner guest. Uh, over to you, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think <laughs> I think he probably would be. Uh, and yeah, I mean, argument is his lifeblood. Uh, he's, I mean, and, and, well, and I mean, that's what you have to keep on doing in order to stay as a skeptic. So, so there's no accident there. I mean, in terms of the sex as the person, I mean, unfortunately, we know literally nothing, almost nothing. I mean, you've, you've said that one thing that we do know about him, namely he was a doctor. Um, that's really about it. Um, so yeah, the... I agree with you about the personality, but it can all we can do is infer it from from the from the text. Um, but yes, I mean th there is a sort of uh, there's a particular kind of sense of an author that comes from his writings. Um, and yeah, I agree. And, and I mean he, he's sometimes dryly humorous. Um, he sometimes puts people down, but he's also sort of willing to uh, give people credit certain times. Um, but yes, argumentative is is certainly one word that you could you could use about him. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, we know. I mean, I, I said we don't know exactly when he lived. Um, we don't know where he lived. Well, somewhere in the Roman Empire, but that's <laughs> pretty uninformative. Um, so yeah, he uh, as a person, he is uh, really a mystery. But we've got his writings, and yes, as you as you say, a certain kind of personality uh, I think shines through. So one final question, because you've translated a lot of his works, 
You seem to me to be a big fan of his. Why? Why are you a big fan of Sextus Imperium? Uh, well, I mean, I suppose in a, in a very broad sense, I'm kind of skeptically inclined myself. Um, I mean, as I said, I think uh, a full-fledged skepticism of Sextus's own variety is no longer an option for us um, because you know modern science just has answered so many questions which were completely up in the air in, in the ancient context. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, I mean, partly it is this idea of, the, of an open mind, but I think, uh, you know, in general, uh, people tend to be more certain about things uh, than is maybe a good idea. Um, and so, yeah, in, in a very broad sense, I think, uh, you know, I, I find this stuff congenial. And um, yeah, and Sextus is the one person who's uh, in ancient Greek skepticism whose writings have survived, but there are some other figures that I've, who I've studied uh, as well. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of outlook that resonates for, with me for whatever reason. I apologize. I just thought of one final, final question, which yeah. is very quickly. Um, people think of skepticism as a kind of destructive act. You, you turn up at the dinner table, the dinner party with, with ideas or beliefs that you hold fervently and the skeptic dismantles them and it feels destructive. Whereas as I was reading, reading this book, I was struck by how creative it is. And I was thinking that most of the big moments in science actually come through skepticism. So Einstein, it becomes skeptical about time, our understanding of time, and he completely revises it. You know, the notion that time slows down and moves at different speeds or slows down in strong gravitational fields, it arises out of a skepticism about the previous notion of time. Um, um, and similarly, the notion that gravity is actually curved space arises out of a skepticism that the previous understanding of gravity was correct. So I actually thought that really skepticism is a profoundly creative act, not a destructive act. What, what are your thoughts? That, that, I think that can very well be true in a lot of cases. And yeah, so um, I mean, a skeptical outlook can actually lead to discoveries. Um, and, and Sextus wouldn't agree with that. I mean, he, he wants to keep the suspension of judgment going permanently. Um, but I think, uh, you know, a, a kind of modified, updated version of his kind of willingness to entertain alternatives uh, can actually be a positive force um, in, in discovery, scientific or otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think there is something to that. Well, Professor Richard Bett, thank you very much indeed. Just to reiterate, the title of the book is How to Keep an Open Mind, an Ancient Guide to Thinking Like a Skeptic, uh, Sextus Empiricus, selected, translated, and introduced by Richard Bett. Professor Richard Bett, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much for, for having me uh, as part of the interview.